Paradise in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 3, Episode 12, starring O.J. Simpson. Originally aired on February 25th, 1978. Hello and welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. How you doing, pal? Good. I'm loose. I'm the <laughs> one that is loose. Joining us tonight for this, uh, what's going to be an interesting episode, is our most prolific third chair, a man named Chili. Hello, Chili. Just a bit of a warning for our audience. Uh, I've I was actually locked up. In a cage uh, since 1988 until 2020. So <laughs> I'm very excited to learn a little bit about our host, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> that 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 wonderful guy from the Naked Gun movie, eh? Yeah, Norberg, Jewish fella. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, that's good. O.J. Simpson, born in San Francisco in 1947. He was a... Uh, Oddly enough, he was a professional actor. He had his first acting gigs before he ever played professional football. Stellar football player, college professionally, broke tons of records. Many people saw him and some still see him as the best of all time. At this point in his career, his professional football career was winding down and he was taking on some acting roles, including Roots, Towering Inferno, Capricorn One was coming out in uh, June of 78. Capricorn One is the most 1970s sounding thing I've heard. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just didn't want to forget it. Capricorn One. That is some (laughs) late 70s titling right there. It could be a movie. It could be a vibrator. It could be like a hair gel. You don't know what Capricorn One. He was also at this point the national spokesman for Hertz, and it was probably among the most popular commercials that were airing at the time. It was a huge campaign that ran for decades. So pre-1994, I grew up, I I knew O.J. Simpson as a sports guy. I'm not a football fan. I wasn't then who had some degree of crossover appeal. Um, It's sort of like the same way I knew guys like like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I certainly knew him best from his Naked Gun movies, and uh, I, I actually thought he was pretty funny in the Naked Gun movie. So pre-94, gentlemen, what was your knowledge of O.J. Simpson? Yeah, I was the same. Like, I knew O.J. as uh, comparable to, like, a, you know, a Charles Barkley or a Peyton Manning, like, big athlete who has some degree of charisma, which helped him carry over a little bit into the mainstream. Naked Gun was a big series of movies, really popular, but it was uh, something where anyone could have kind of stepped in and done those. So I didn't I didn't understand exactly how famous he was. I mean, I'm with you guys. We're all uh, we're all kind of in the same bucket here. Uh, I, I think I probably first ever saw him in the Naked Gun movies. I think it was hilarious. And uh, I, I wasn't a football guy either. I started watching football, excuse me, when I was a teenager, but I know who O.J. Simpson was by then. I didn't know he was a star athlete, uh, but I certainly... I, did, I certainly didn't know like a lot about him, other than he was a former football player that's now funny in the movies. Yeah. So 1994, um, OJ's wife, Nicole Brown, uh, ex-wife Nicole Brown and her friend Ronald Goleman were, were brutally, savagely murdered. 
OJ Simpson was arrested, tried in what is definitely the most famous trial in certainly the second half of the 20th century. I watched every bit of it with my father right from the time I got home from school right up until Larry King signed off and sometimes even a little later into the night. I was into the Inquirer and uh, my aunt used to get it and I'd read the OJ stuff. I'm not certainly not an expert. I'm no Jeffrey Tubin, but uh, I certainly know a lot about this case, probably more than, you know, 90 to 99 percent of the people walking the earth. I mean, it's uh, I think I'll come right out. I think he was guilty of two terrible murders and, and ruined a lot of lives, but was found not guilty based on an excellent defense team and a less than stellar prosecution that was a ta- was tasked beyond their limit. Tonight, however, as this role I've, I've thrust upon myself, I've tried my best to watch the show based on what we would have known in 1978 and to just go through sketches as if um, OJ was just any other host. I certainly didn't think that was going to be possible, but we'll see how, how it worked. You know, the true crime element of OJ overshadows his football career and uh, really everything else about him, as far as I'm concerned. Gentlemen, any thoughts on that? I'd like to get the the murder bits, uh, if you will, out of the way early so we can talk show throughout. Well, I mean, this is all news to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly, like, uh, I'm a bit younger, so I knew the trial was going on. I didn't follow it on you know, CNN or any other newscast, but I, you know, you couldn't avoid the dancing Edos and, you know, Leno, Letterman, like it was the biggest news in the world. I find a lot of times like things in the States, they often claim like, oh, this is the trial of the century and all that. You know, I think uh, Leopold uh, Leopold and Loeb and all that was the trial of the century. And then it was the Scopes monkey trial, but without question, OJ's uh, murder trial is with, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the biggest news story, even just because of the time it happened. Like, you know, we had the 24 hour news cycle. We had the, you know, the internet was still like in its infancy, but you were catching stuff on that. And it was humongous. And I think in a way it's sort of done a disservice in a lot of ways, how popular the trial was. Because it did ignore the fact that for all the dancing Edos and shit like that, like there were two people who were savagely murdered and it's very hard to remove that from your brain when you see OJ Simpson. Yeah. It's crazy what the, uh, the OJ trial did. I mean, I would, you know, it really, not that it, it, it really gave that shot in the arm to the true crime genre that led mm-hmm. to today us having, you know, all, all these news channels as Chile just went over the 24 hour news cycle. And, you know, it's still going strong, uh, but a big part of it started here. It's so weird uh, now in hindsight to sit back and think that there was shit like the dancing Edos. Fuck Jay Leno, by the mm-hmm. way. But I digress. Fascinating. I have Marsha Clark's book here. I'm looking at its spine on my bookcase. I haven't finished it yet. Wild and surreal and troubling. And I could just go on about it. I want to, but I know we got a show to get to. And yeah, you know, like, like you, like you though, uh, important to say, uh, I tried to watch it uh, through a lens and and Mm -hmm. through a filter. Uh, And of course, of course he did it. Um, <laughs> That's 
the lens I'm coming at it with, and I think we're all kind of on the same page, fellas. Thankfully, years of being a pro wrestling fan have made me be able to <laughs> separate an artist from the art. And so, yeah, I, I found this fairly easy to ignore what I know of the case and just watch this as if I was somebody watching it in the late 70s. So hopefully that carries through. Real quick, because we're talking about it, but I, I think it, uh, since we're talking about the murder and the show and all that, posthumous high fives to Norm MacDonald, who, of course, was telling us on Saturday Night Live for quite a long time. Yes. Yeah, it actually got him fired. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and we will have other people, uh, certainly, that have we have we'll have other notorious folks on the show for various different reasons. We have at least one other person who was accused of killing their wife. So uh, we, we will have these tougher hosts to deal with as time comes on. All right. So we have a disclaimer. Are you guys ready to go? Are we good? I'm good. Amped up. Let's do it. So uh, disclaimer. James at 16 marries Roman Polanski will not be seen tonight. James at 15 or James at 16 was a dramatic series, series at the time. And Roman Polanski was Roman Polanski at the time. Glad we got all the controversy out of the way early. Was this known about Roman Polanski at this point in time? Was he in exile? I believe so. Like, when that popped up on screen, I was like, Jesus, tap dancing. Like, OJ may not even be the worst part of this episode. No, he still is. <laughs> Cold open. Gilda is reading viewer mail. It's all letters sent in by men named Kevin. Basically, these are a, a gradual list of questions that lead to Gilda admitting that when the writers don't have material, they resort to doing viewer mail. Really enjoyed this. I don't know how it would have worked out. I don't know how things worked out. But when I was watching this, I was thinking Gilda would have been a great late night talk show host. I think That audience was in the palm of her hands throughout. The joke of the recurring Kevins was hilarious. And just to note, this might actually be the first thing I ever saw Gilda do, as this was the opening sketch or the opening bit or towards the opening bit of her greatest hits tape that my father used to rent when I was a kid. So uh, yeah, big laugh out of this. Really enjoyed it. Thought the audience was all in. Simple, easy. This is almost like a season one cold open. Uh, thumbs up for me on this one. I kind of disagree in a lot of respects. I didn't find this funny. I I found it was exactly what they kind of described it was. It was the writers had nothing. So they sent Gilda out there and they just relied on Gilda's term. Now, that being said, Gilda is fantastic. She was charming. She did have the audience in the palm of her hand. And she got jokes out of things that were not particularly funny. I give 100% of any success this has to her and not to the people who wrote it. Because mm -hmm. it was a pretty bad cold open, in my opinion. But she made it work as best as she could. Understood. I agree, Chili. I thought it was stupid. Uh, I didn't like it. Without Gilda, it sinks completely. Uh, if you can't write a cold open that week, come on. You work on a big network TV show. You work in New York City. Get, get, get your act together and write the show and don't rely on the actor's charm. Come on. <laughs> so we now have an intro. This is a new intro. Dan and Gilda still have the same things in front of the billboard, but the rest have live action things where they're either individually running up from the subway or they're sort of hanging around on the sidewalk with traffic in the background. You know, I'm fine with them changing things and, and, and giving a, a bit of a facelift, but it, it really bugged me that Dan and Gilda didn't get anything new and others did. So I don't know. I, it just bothered me. It seemed like a, a half finished intro. No, this one didn't bother me at all. Everyone did something a little bit different. I'm not familiar with the intros they've been doing, but 
yeah, this is fine to me. I liked them too. I liked the new ones. The only thing I can figure is they probably just liked theirs. And so they were like, no, nah, fuck that. I'm going to keep mine. And yeah. somebody was just like, okay. Thematically, it still fits. We now have the monologue. The host comes down with a, uh, he has a cone head on. It's very dented. It's, it's, it's not been a well-loved cone head. He does this long and meandering bit about how he's accomplished so much and how long he's been trying to get to be the host of Saturday Night Live. Basically, uh, everything he's done on the football field and such was leading to this. Uh, but all the success he had left him with an empty feeling until he could get to host. He doesn't know if he'll make the challenge, and he just hopes that people remember him for uh, what he was and not what he becomes tonight. To me, this was uh, very long. It felt very long. There were some comic bits where the band chimed in with music, but it seemed to be kind of a random thing. He is, I mean, we, we people still say it today. He's a very charming person. He, uh, and he, he presented what he had extremely well. He was actually probably better than many of the actors who had to do longer monologues. And one thing I did notice about him is maybe it was just because he was talking about himself, but I didn't see any obvious cue card reads. Wasn't a great monologue, but it was well performed. Yeah, the first thing that obviously you know stands out is the conehead. I was assuming there was going to be a conehead sketch shortly afterwards, and that's why he had it on. But no, it, he uh-huh. probably just said, you know what, I like that conehead sketch. Can I have a conehead at some point? And they probably said, ah, we'll give it to you in the monologue. That being said, really nice looking suit. Without being too over dramatic, like this monologue right off the bat, like, for, you know, I'm 38 or 39 years old now. I'm not going to go back to his trial every time, but at the time his trial happened, like I said, it was kind of hard to fully fathom how big a deal it was. It wasn't just some athlete. And within two or three minutes of this monologue, I kind of saw like, okay, this guy was like, he he was very charismatic. It reminded me a lot of like when The Rock hosted in 2000, which ultimately, in my opinion, led to The Rock's career we all know now. Super charming, good looking guy. Like he was speaking about himself, but he did it well. And I almost felt like if there was like, maybe there was a technical difficulty because the band chiming in got laughs, but it happened at very weird times. It always bugs me when these, especially with athletes, but also with actors too, when they have like a false modesty. And I do appreciate the fact that he was not bashful about the fact that, you know, he had his successes and it all led him to this point. But yeah, it just wasn't funny, but it was well delivered. I mean, you guys already covered it all. They definitely were just like... Sure, the juice wants to be a conehead. Put this fucking shitty thing on him and send him out there to wear it during the monologue because we don't have a conehead sketch this week. I noticed too, Keith. He doesn't. He's not reading anything. He's just uh, he's he's loose. The juice uh-huh. is. <laughs> You're right. The timing was a mess. The music thing was weird, and the the randomly interrupting piano. One thing I'll say too, and it, I mean one pro and one con was a con is definitely. Between the cold open where they blatantly kind of said whether it was, you know, realistically or not, that we don't have anything written for the cold open, combined with this monologue where it doesn't seem like they had a whole lot written, it didn't give a good impression for the, how the show is going to go because the first two sketches, it kind of seemed like, well, we got nothing. We're just going to wing it tonight. But the jokes that did land seemed to come more from OJ himself than anything I was written for him. OJ hoping that people remember him for what he was and not what he became tonight is paraphrased in his alleged suicide note that Robert Kardashian read in 1994. (laughs) Our first real sketch is Samurai Night Fever, most likely written by Alan Zweibel. 
Bill, Lorraine, and Jane play your stereotypical Italian family eating a spaghetti dinner for supper. Bill wonders where his son Tony is. Tony, we hear, is upstairs ready ready to go dancing. We cut upstairs and find out that Tony is Samurai Futaba. He's combing his hair and his kimono has been modified to look like John Travolta's clothing from Saturday Night Fever. We cut back to the family. The other son, Joe, is a priest, is coming home, and they hope he'll talk some sense into Tony. Tony, a.k.a. Samurai Futaba, is doing an Italian version of the gibberish, um, and he continues this as he argues with his family. The brother Joe is played by O.J. Simpson. He implies he's leaving the priesthood, but actually says he doesn't want to be black anymore. The samurai invites Joe to go dancing with him. We then go to a disco club where Dan and Don Novello play some pals of the samurai, and uh, they all, they're joined by Joe at the table. Gilda plays a woman who wants to dance with samurai, but dances with Joe instead, and the samurai dances to staying alive. So, uh, this was a big one. This was a, a bit of an epic sketch. It reinforces the original point that this character is not Japanese, but is a white guy with some severe cultural confusions. I did laugh at Belushi's Italian-Japanese gibberish, which I thought was actually pretty funny. It was a wise but disconnected parody of the film. Absolutely longer than it had to be. Maybe a refreshing change for the Sammy or Samurai formula if you're into that. Awesome use of green screen. Overall, I didn't laugh a lot at this, um, but um, but I appreciated, I think, what they did with it. Um, still not big on the Samurai, but uh, even the pun, Samurai Night Fever, kind of got a giggle at it. An overly long sketch built on stupid racial stereotypes based on a stupid fucking sketch in the first place. Way too long. OJ's a natural. He he's out there. He, and uh, he's he's comfortable and he's in it and he's dedicated. But uh, he he's got fucking. They didn't write anything for him for the monologue, and they didn't write anything for him here. Ego jerk off piece for Belushi. I fucking hate it. Yeah, for me this stank. Like Samurai Night Fever was the funniest thing in it. Just the name. Yeah, I found, like, Belushi, like, I gotta disagree, Keith, like, his Japanese, like, John Travolta voice was awful. It didn't sound that much like Travolta, and it didn't sound like he, like, his typical samurai character. I did laugh out loud when he started using the chopsticks for the spaghetti and meatballs, but when you do a sketch that takes up, I don't know, 10 minutes of screen time, and O.J. Simpson is the most convincing Italian you have in the sketch, it's, I don't know, it was a big miss, like, and also, too, one thing that was running through the whole episode, some parts of it were done better than others. The whole thing of OJ deciding he doesn't want to be black anymore. It got a bit of a laugh in the beginning, but as the episode goes on, they could have saved that joke to make other jokes in, in future sketches mean a bit more. But I was very impressed by the end that it was green screen. At least in my opinion, that looked pretty impressive for a live television show. That's almost, you know, 45, whatever years old. Agreed with the green screen. And uh, just because, you know, I watch a lot of this OJ shit too. But uh, my understanding, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm just some white dude on the internet. But uh, OJ Simpson really tried very hard to not seem like a black dude around his rich white friends. That is my understanding, is that it was a real issue with him. Did you ever hear that? 
Yes. Yeah. And he was criticized a lot by folks like Jim Brown, who who did give back to their communities um, for not doing that. It's a tricky debate, like to equate, you know, a certain lifestyle with a with an ethnicity. I, I like it's it's a weird debate to have these days. But but yes, all, you know, his 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 social circles were, were golf clubs, you know. You know, we all come from different places. Like, you know, I'm the whitest guy in the planet in terms of like <laughs> looks and like just general whiteness. But like if I, you know, if people make it big, you don't necessarily feel like you have to give back. It's, you know, live your best life. Like not everybody sees it the same way. That was always a thing thrown at OJ for better or worse, um, especially in terms of, you know, in terms of, you know, OJ, from what I understand, predominantly from the 60s until today, like, you know, he got a lot of, he's still gets a lot of criticism for, you know, exclusively, as far as I know, dating white women. And that's always been a thing for him. And this episode pointed at that a lot. Great moments in sports. Uh, OJ Simpson hosts the show where he talks about Babe Ruth and a time when Ruth promised he'd hit a home run for a sick kid in a hospital. We then go to the hospital. Belushi plays Babe Ruth. Garrett plays a sick child. Dan and Jane are there as a doctor and a nurse. So Belushi's visiting this hospital. And of course, as uh, Babe Ruth himself probably did, he had a beer and a hot dog in his hands. Garrett is delighted to see his hero and asks him to hit a home run. We then go to the hospital room listening to a a radio broadcast of the game. Garrett is really excited and hoping Babe will hit a home run for him. Babe Ruth doesn't go through, doesn't come through. It turns out the young kid that Garrett was playing is young Hank Aaron, who vows revenge on Ruth for not coming through. This was hilarious to me. Um, Garrett was stellar. His reaction to finding out he's dying via the radio announcement, um, his reactions to the baseball almost going out as we hear the uh, Bill Murray's radio announcer. Dan and Jane were good in, in supporting roles. Bill's announcer was good. Simpson was fine. Thought this was excellently written and performed and one of the better outings thus far for Garrett. Really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah, Garrett was a lot of fun. OJ was good. He flubbed a, he flubbed the, uh, I guess the punchline we'll say, about Hank Aaron a little bit. Uh, maybe could have had a bit more oomph to it. I found this was another one that went maybe a little long. It was just fun watching Garrett's reaction. And yeah, him saying like, I'm dying? When the radio announcer said it, it was funny. It had some really good points to it, but maybe just a little too long. I did laugh out loud as well at Babe Ruth just drinking a full-sized beer (laughs) while in the hospital. Probably the biggest laugh out loud reaction I've had to a sketch in a while, Garrett, in this sketch with the realization that he's dying, cracked up at the table. Uh, Everybody's good in it. Dan's good. Uh, Garrett is obviously the star. Holy shit. Uh, again, you, you guys really covered all the best parts of what I, I, I want to add my two cents and just say, this was just some really, uh, funny comedy. And, and again, really reliant on the, uh, the performance of the cast tonight. Again, not like they're out here with the sh- some razor sharp jokes or, uh, trying anything, uh, interesting yet, but, um, yeah, another sketch that really rides on the uh the cast which is cool but i mean i'm noticing we now have a chiron this man is his own best friend a joke that will later appear in Spaceballs, i believe uh, we now go to the music 
It's Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson. They're a husband and wife singer-songwriter duo. For the record, Valerie is not related to O.J. Simpson. These two folks were songwriting artists with a writing catalog that I hope made them billionaires. They wrote songs like Ain't No Mountain High Enough, I'm Every Woman, You're All I Need to Get By, and Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. So they should be well off. They also wrote some music for The Wiz, among many, many other hits for other artists. Um, They released two albums in 1977, So So Satisfied and Send It. Tonight, they performed So So Satisfied. It hit 27 on the R&B charts, and it was released on So So Satisfied. This was a slower number where she was at the piano, and he was kind of leaning in singing. Um, This type of music is not for me. They were good. Um, I thought she was fantastic. Not so into him, but uh, it was was good. I liked it, but uh, again, not my genre, and a little little down, more downbeat than I would like. Yeah, this is one where I've never heard of them, but very first thing when I saw it was you know, the last name Simpson. I immediately went to Google, Wikipedia to look up if they were related, if this is like some type of nepotism hire. Turns out it's the exact opposite. Uh, these people should be way more well-known than they are based on the songs they've written. Uh, one you didn't mention, Eric Keith, was a uh, uh, solid, like solid, solid as a rock. They wrote that like there's a lot of people who became extremely rich based off of these two. and. I actually, the same thing, this is not my typical type of music. And I think that if I listened to it in the car or on the radio, you know, I I wouldn't turn it off, but it wasn't great. But there was something about visually watching the two of them together. They seemed to be having a lot of fun. Like they, the way they sort of interacted, their eye contact and all that. I liked this a lot more than I figured I would. And yeah, this was this is a very pleasant surprise for me. I was into it. I uh, I didn't love the song, but you know what it is? This show just fucking generally bores me to death with the musical act so much that even just this change of genre and contemporary music was a bit of a breath of fresh air. Uh, it was just... It was just different. So I thought the song was a pretty weak. I mean, come on. Uh, but their performances were good. They're great. I mean, they they were famous for a reason. And, you know, it was it, it's not for me either. But, my goodness, it's nice to not have some old fucking white dude out there. <laughs> we now have the Mohawk Master. And this is an ad. So it's uh, two hair clippers with a break in the middle for giving Mohawks. And it's good for the whole family. Dan presents this as his fast-talking Ronco guy, but he has a mohawk, and the whole family gets a mohawk, even the uh, the grandmother and the grandkid. To me, this was okay. It was definitely not top tier uh, of these commercials. The only laugh I had was when Dan said, it's good for the whole family, even Sparky has one, and the camera pounds down to reveal that Sparky is actually a sheep. Other than that, uh, yeah, this was uh, this was not good. This was kind of a sea level commercial for me. Yeah, I also I laughed out loud when Sparky was a sheep. I thought that was really funny. But yeah, the whole like you know, Mohawks are back, and you know, knowing the time this is done, when like it was sort of like when you know punk music was really starting to amp up. Uh, you know, just a quick shout out if you like punk music, you want to hear more about it. There's a really good podcast called No Dogs in Space. I recommend checking that out, but I miss back when Mohawks were a sign of being like a street tough 
and not just like a 45 year old fucking gym bro with like bedazzled <laughs> jeans and an affliction t-shirt yeah it wasn't very good for me it was a you know an attempt to be topical try to try to make a joke the kids will like it's supposed to be the idea of this show man the writers are snoozers this week though this is like you know dad trying to write a joke for the kids it was pretty stupid Next sketch is the raid on Nicosia. And this is a parody of Victory at Entebbe and Raid at Entebbe. These were two really quickly made, made for television movies about rescue missions in Uganda that had aired the previous year. So the, the backstory on this is the week before in Cyprus, an Egyptian journalist and a friend of the uh, Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, was killed by two gunmen and they were holding other people hostage. So Egyptian special forces went into Cyprus to rescue the hostages. They were met with this uh, Cypriot national guard who were tasked to defend their country from an unauthorized invasion. So it turned into a big, uh, a big to do. This is a parody of a movie that would uh, chronicle that it's a big TV movie being made to capitalize on the event. And it's also sort of making jokes about the, uh, the victory and raid on Antebi movies. Don Pardo was announcing and throws it to cast members who do quick scenes, I guess, from the uh, the actors who've been cast in the movie. We have Garrett playing Sherman Hemsley, playing Anwar Sadat. Bill Murray playing Tony Orlando, playing uh, one of the Egyptian commandos. OJ is Andrew Young. It's a role that was done by uh, uh, Garrett Morris a couple times. Lorraine plays Debbie Boond, who is a flight attendant in the movie. Dan plays Robert Stack as Cyrus Vance. Jane is playing Helen Hayes as a hostage, and Gilda plays Valerie Harper, who is playing Mrs. Anwar Sadat. Belushi is playing Ed Asner, who is playing Yasser Arafat. My highlight of this is seeing Gilda do her Valerie Harper, because as a kid, and I mentioned this before, as a kid, I I thought Valerie Harper and Gilda Radner were actually the same person. So that's always kind of fun for me to see. Other than this, I, th- I think this is one of them ones that if you're going to find it funny, it's very much funny in the time. Because not only is it depicting a historical event that wasn't that far ago, long ago, it's also depicting, you know, two movies that, par- that uh, rushed to production to chronicle an event that was also uh, not too long ago at the time. But uh, every bit of it is completely lost. To be honest, I had to do too much research on this to make sense of it and the impressions weren't good enough characters yeah i feel the exact same way i'm not too familiar with the actual like the you know, the crisis and i didn't find the impressions were that good so i didn't even bother taking notes for this there was not anything really to speak about maybe at the time it was great i didn't really think too much of it it, it seemed uh, like a bit filler they're really they're really trying to stay with the hot topics this episode huh I, mean, I, I I did I did like seeing Robert Stack. Uh, that 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 was nice for me. But otherwise, this was uh, uninspired. Yeah, Dan's Robert Stack. We we've only seen it once or twice before. It's always fun though. We're now off to weekend update, which is brought to us tonight by Dogmo, the golden shower of beers. Now this there's a bit in live in, live from New York about this and golden shower being picked up by a censor they didn't expect to get it. Um, I actually thought, based on the story, that it was can't that it didn't air, but apparently it got through. We talk about John Mitchell getting an artificial hip. He's detained for his role in Watergate. Uh, Jane says he's basically trying to gradually replace himself so he can visit himself in prison. The state of Georgia has changed its name to Charlene. 
Bill Murray does a bit about the Oscars and Bill Murray's uh, Oscar bits, not this, but other ones will go on to be sort of a big thing for Bill Murray's uh, Weekend Update character. He does a bit where he's comparing Woody Allen to Orson Welles. The uh, only funny bit was at the end when Bill said to uh, that Jane had uh, shacked up with Woody and Jane smiles and agrees. Lorraine plays her reporter character who's the first woman in the locker room of an NFL team. And she's with OJ Simpson. And this is basically a bunch of dick jokes. Roseanne Rosanna Dana uh, gets a letter from Bob Van Rye, which is the name of one of the SNL stage managers. And Bob is asking about dental plaque. Roseanne goes into a thing about uh, things getting stuck in her teeth and all that sort of stuff. It uh, grosses out Jane. Same deal as we've seen from Roseanne, but it's still pretty funny. It's it's a repetitive thing, but it hasn't gotten old yet for me. Um, all in all, weekend update, not a great one. Dan is getting more comfortable, but even Dan didn't have much to play with this time. Adding to the Roman Polanski and OJ creepiness factor, they did talk about Woody Allen for a solid three or four minutes. Yeah, and then Lorraine interviewed uh, what was seemingly a naked OJ, and it's just, run! <laughs> like, run away! I liked Bill Murray's bit. They really, you know what I liked about the, this Bill Murray bit is that uh, out of the gate, it was not a hot start, and it has struggled, but they're sticking with it, and he's getting more comfortable. Somebody, I'm assuming and hoping it's Bill himself, uh, definitely believes in the character and its potential and are trying to write around it. Uh, I think it's a great sign. And uh, I do, you know, this wasn't my favorite, but he's getting more comfortable. And uh, I think there's growth there. I, I think it should be recognized. I'm not sick of Roseanne, Rosanna Dana either. I still think it's funny. thought her non sequitur ranting was pretty hilarious. And Jane yelling at her always gets a pop out of me. I love Jane's disdain for Gilda's characters. A lot of the like the the desk jokes were flat for me. I didn't. I don't remember liking a single one of them. And I still don't like Dan doing this. Pretty mid tier weekend update. We now have a sketch called OJ's Record, and OJ plays himself. Dan Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, and John Belushi play his friends. Oddly enough, Dan and John are representing two of OJ's black friends, Al Cowlings, who we hear about a lot in 94, and Reggie McKenzie. They're watching television, and it's a game with Walt, where Walter Payton is on the brink of breaking OJ's records. OJ says he's very humble about it and very cool with Payton's progress, but he occasionally goes to a cupboard where he keeps a Walter Payton voodoo doll where he sticks pins in it and runs it underwater, sticks it in the uh, freezer. Yeah, this wasn't awesome, but I I didn't hate it either. And I wonder, like, how often athletes are really, you know, supportive of the people about to beat their records, but yet so pissed off underneath, you know? (laughs) Do they actually have voodoo dolls and such? Yeah, it was a okay sketch. Like, it had, you know, some good jokes to it. Like, the first, you know, OJ, once again, he did a good job as playing the guy who's supportive of the other guy who about to break his record. It was a one-joke sketch. The fact that some of the records OJ has are still, you know, 45, whatever, 50 years later, are still in place. Pretty good. I don't know. Maybe I just think it's a bit of an obvious joke. I don't know what it is. Didn't work for me. I, I really feel that there's a laziness to this episode as far as the sketches are going that uh, there's really not a lot of time effort and focus being put into them and inspired performances sure uh, including from the host can can kind of carry something but there, there's something missing nobody was cracking the whip this week i don't know what do i know i wasn't there all right uh we now go to franken and davis uh tom davis comes out and announces that al franken is dying 
of a brain tumor. And uh, it really means a lot to Al to make people laugh. So they're going to bring Al out uh, in his advanced state of uh, illness to tell some jokes. So Franken comes out and he's slurring. He's forgetting. Uh, Tom tries to goad the audience on to cheering for Al. When Al gets overwhelmed, Tom pats him down with a sponge of water. Al keeps giving the punchline to the first joke to every joke that follows. I could totally see people not wanting to see this today. What I will say is Franken's odd delivery was uh, did get a bit of a smile out of me. Um, but Davis is like unwavering support for for Al and his in behind Al trying to goad the audience into supporting his friend really cracked me up. I, I thought Davis stole this segment. And uh, oddly enough, Al's the one that was front and center. Yeah, this is another one that didn't really land for me. Uh, I've liked some of the Frank and Davis stuff I've seen, but this was definitely on the low end of it. I don't think I was bothered too much by the whole he's dying, because obviously it's part of the sketch. But yeah, Davis did great. Franken didn't really do too much for me either. Not much of a laugh to it. I mean, like, they could have just used a head wound. Why do you got to use a sad disease? Just just use he hit his head too hard. But I guess, you know, that the, the whole thing, you know what the whole thing is? It reeks of a like a college comedy experiment. Mm-hmm. This should be like an open mic down at the Greywood. This shouldn't be on your big network TV show. This is some, I don't know, rookie theater shit. I, di- I didn't like this. I thought this was beneath them, I guess is what I'm getting at. The star of this sketch was the audience who really did not want to play along. <laughs> And you pretty much summed up the critics of uh, uh, Franken and Davis backstage very much said what you said, like this is freshman open mic material uh, for for a lot of their stuff. I don't think my I don't think Michael O'Donoghue ever ever saw Franken as being anything more than that. Well, just knowing that this kind of took the this kind of like filled the Andy Kaufman role, I guess we'll say this was so far below what he does. And what he does is obviously Mm -hmm. very, you know unique let's just say but at least like there's a degree of energy a degree of effort there like this felt like it's the producer's buddies want to go up and do something that Mm -hmm. they think is funny and yeah it was a damn squib didn't hit at all we now go to mandingo 2 and this is a parody of the mandingo movie from a few years ago um basically this is set in an 18th century u.s plantation and in this version, in Mandingo 2, a lot of people are hooking up with each other, including uh, OJ and Lorraine, Garrett and Bill, Bill and Lorraine. Garrett's in drag, by the way. Garrett and OJ, Garrett and Lorraine, Bill and OJ, and Bill and a cow. <laughs> All I wrote about this one, well, I know, like, OJ, apparently this is the first interracial same-sex kiss on television between OJ and Bill Murray. So file that one in your trivia uh, pocket. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Mandingo gets mentioned in a few sketches in the past. I've looked it up. There's, you know, at the time it was universally hated. People are revisiting that a little bit or doubling down on that. So I, it's it's maybe a movie I have to see to really get the joke. But I have to be honest, the teenage boy that still lingers inside me did laugh a few times at this. So uh, a, a solid side thumb from me on this one. It was... Obviously, courting some degree of controversy, I guess, which the movie itself, you know, the original Mandingo, I'm sure it was as well, just based on the subject matter of it. It's so crazy. Once again, looking back on it on like modern eyes, like, oh, it's so shocking. This it's like, fuck out of here. Like, it's kind of crazy. But I did laugh the fact that the one kiss they kind of cut away from was <laughs> Garrett and uh, 
was it Lorraine or Gilda? And they just showed everything else. Like they cut away back to Bill and OJ kissing, it seemed. But I don't know. It was weird. The audience seemed to like it, though. So maybe it's just something I'm missing out on. And I am not Googling Mandingo film on my work phone. I know there was a popular porn star back in the day called Mandingo, and I'm not going to court that. Named after the movie. I thought this was pretty wild. Yeah, they certainly, they pulled no punches. They just, they they let it all hang out uh, with this uh, sketch. And uh, I really liked it. It was ex- exploitative. It was trashy. It's, it's what I want out of late night TV. Pushed some buttons and it was fast paced and they were clever about it. Big thumbs up for me. I think you're going to have to watch the Mandingo movie because it's referred to as uh, trashy and exploitative. Mm. (laughs) Pulls no punches. Quentin Tarantino has said it's one of the few big budget exploitation movies that were ever made. Oh, well, there's a Chiron where a man is mentally overdressing his date. Uh, E. Buzz Miller's Animal Kingdom. So Buzz and Christy Christina are back, Dan and Lorraine. And instead of art this time, they're showing animals mating. And Dan and Lorraine, of course, giggle at it. We have frogs and ladybugs. A ladybug who looks like he's, Dan says he looks like he snuck up on her. We have some butterflies who are doing it upside down. An earthworm, uh, two earthworms, and they uh, wax on how they're hermaphroditic. And he, he refers to uh, he refers to earthworms as ACDCs and spiked S&M switch hitters. And we have some salamanders. Um, E. Buzz Miller, fun character. This is not as good as the art one, but it was kept short. And I kind of saw this one as just a quick, fun interlude, more than like a full-on sketch. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, not not a patch on the art one, but this was pretty damn funny. I'm not familiar with the character. Uh, it was just animals, you know, videos of animals having sex, like very childish. I will say Lorraine, you know, Lorraine did good work. She had a lot of fun playing the very ditzy I'm presuming stripper or dancer, and she looked like a million bucks. So yeah, aside from Lorraine, I could have passed on this one in a heartbeat. I didn't love it too much myself. I I thought the jokes were, uh, like you said, Joey, a bit, uh, just a bit weak. And I really like the premise. I like these characters, but uh, I this was one of those, you know, I've mentioned it a couple of times this episode. It seems like the performers are doing all the work and they, I think they tried their best here. I mean, uh, this relied too heavily on the actors and not enough on the jokes. Again, a real theme this episode. Uh, Chiron, this person is dangerous when entertained. We now go to a parody of the uh, Hertz commercials. OJ Simpson is running through the airport. Emily Latella pokes up and says, go RJ, go. Um, OJ gets to the counter. Lorraine, playing a Hertz rep, tells him that they've already given his car to Walter Payton because Hertz likes to go with a winner. This was a really, actually, it was a very solid parody. It was shot very similar. The uh, Emily Latella go RJ go got a laugh out of me. The one time I was taken out of this episode and brought back to the other OJ, though, is at the very end in the freeze frame when he holds up his fist to Lorraine. I did not like that in retrospect, but they didn't know it at the time. Yeah, this is a great parody of the sketch of the uh, commercials that were very popular, very well shot. And, you know, another thing about Walter Payton, I guess, you know, Walter Payton probably should have gotten a nice little residual check from this episode as well. OJ making a fist at her is like, once again, like, run, run away from this man. (laughs) But (laughs) otherwise, it was a fantastic parody of a popular sketch at the time. So I like this for what it was. It really did just look uh, just like the commercials. They did a great job on it. I liked it okay. I I thought it was pretty clever. It was nice and short. Good parody. 
this might be a good time to drop a name I've not said yet. It's James Signorelli. He was the person that directed all the commercials, most of the commercials, the, the pre-shot ones. Real master of his craft, and, and you could really see in this one how, how close they got to the, uh, to the actual commercial. It was very well done, and it's a shame we haven't mentioned that name yet. It's almost too bad, because like, a lot of the season one stuff, like constantly mentioning the people who are making these, for the most part, shitty short films for them. It was like Mr. Bill sketches had some highs and lows. The uh what was the other guy's name who did the very like off the wall stuff? I know you guys seem to like him a lot more than I did. Gary Weiss. Yeah, the Gary Weiss stuff, like they would always say the names of, you know, this is Gary Weiss. This is so and so's video. This is that is like mm-hmm. and a lot of them were in my opinion trash. But like the commercial parodies I've been seeing lately are so much better. So much more like what SNL would become. And yeah, it is almost too bad that we've seen so many of them so far. And this is the first time, you know, we've thought to mention them and give them a shout out for the people who directed and put them together. We now go to back to Ashford and Simpson. Don't cost you nothing. So this is a, a peppier song. They're up and they're moving for this one. And much more pleasing tempo to me. There was a little bit of a uh, little bit of choreography going on there, too. These two are, are really great at sharing the stage together. You can just see the chemistry coming off them. And we actually really haven't seen that yet from a double act. You know, the genre of music, was it was verging on disco. Not for me, but I really enjoyed the performance. She is, he's fine. Um, I mean, he's, he's a very talented man. But she's quite amazing as a performer. I was just very captivated by her. Um, so yeah, I was very, I was pleased with this. Yeah. Like, uh, first of all, like, you know, she's gorgeous. She can sing. I say this in the best possible way, like a sunny and chair type thing where she's a star, but he complimented her very well. And the two of them look like they're having a lot of fun, good chemistry together. And I was delighted when, when I looked them up to see that, you know, they were together until he passed away. So it doesn't seem like it's got one of these, you know, sad Hollywood romance story so yeah i like this it was more up-tempo it was fun uh she looked great he looked great too like i <laughs> i wish that it was acceptable for men to dress like that in 2023 because i'd have those big ass boots <laughs> on too but yeah no i i like this this was a very pleasant surprise these guys and musical acts to be very hit or miss and this is uh these guys are hit for both songs for me uh much better song uh the one thing that stood out to me chili it is acceptable for a man to dress like that in 2023 let me be very clear about that as a flamboyant dresser myself it's totally okay it is not acceptable for me to dress like that in 2023 because my ankles could not handle the platforms (laughs) i i accept that and uh i mean everything is unisex unless you're a little bitch about it a much better song much more up-tempo number. And I mean, since we're on the topic, there's like no room in those jeans at all. Our boy here is seriously packing. We now go to Celebrity Battle of the Sexes. Um, Bill plays, is it Bill or Dan? Bill, Bill. Bill plays host Brent Musburger. And this is the uh, actually Celebrity Battle of the Races and Sexes. So uh, we have, uh, in this one, we have the white women versus the black men. And Lorraine is playing Sandy Duncan. Gilda is playing Marie Osmond. OJ is playing himself. And Garrett Morris is playing Leon Spinks. 
This is a parody of the old Battle of the Sexes uh, or Battle of the Network Stars, all those things they used to do. The score of the uh, match, or the series of matches between the black men and the white women is currently sitting at 3,100 to nothing. Jane plays a, uh, a courtside correspondent, and the white women promise in an interview with Jane to give it all they got. OJ does most of the talking for their interview as Garrett does the famous big toothless smile that Leon Spinks became famous for after he beat Ali. Dan Aykroyd plays Ronnie, uh, voiceover artist Ronnie Gwynn, who announces the prizes, which is basically like, uh, for the lack of a better term, a pimp car, pimp, cl- pimp clothes, and a sword. The event tonight is a tug of war. OJ and Leon Spinks win very easily. Jane and Lorraine are pulled into mud and they're hosed down by uh, a maid. And this maid is credited as Yvonne Hudson, who becomes a featured player in 1980. Funny overall, I mean, Garrett's Leon Spinks had me roaring with laughter. Uh, Lorraine Sandy Duncan was fantastic as well. Idea was good. They might have been a little long on the execution, but uh, I really uh, kind of enjoyed this one as a last end of the night deal. And uh, yeah. Black men versus white women in a bunch of like strength based contests was uh, was was a hilarious idea. Yeah, I like this one. Like you know, getting towards the end of the episode, you sometimes have some you know less funny sketches, but this one, for as much as it relied on you know obviously like racial stuff and all that, like I thought it was funny. Everyone seemed to be in on the joke. The Leon Spinks was fantastic. Like uh, I think he didn't. Ep- I want to say he was interviewed on Howard Stern and like. It's not an exaggeration. Like the smile, the no. way he talked, like Garrett nailed it. You know, OJ played a great OJ. <laughs> and Sandy Duncan and Marie Osmond, like it was just funny. Like it was poking fun at everybody all around. The the pimp cane, the prizes. It was all around funny. It just very much reminded me of like this could have been a Chappelle show sketch 25 years later, you know. Yeah, you know, there's differences. It's lightly poking fun at it, and I think everybody was in on the joke. So yeah, this one was uh, this was a pretty good sketch in my opinion. I liked it okay too. It was uh, you know, it's a bit. I mean, the celebrity impersonations from the ladies are a bit lost on me, but uh, I do remember Lorraine's a little bit. That's Sandy Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) The dudes were really good, and Garrett again had me cracking up with a smile. Uh, He was all in this episode. Between Mandingo and this and the Babe Ruth sketch, uh, he's really killing it, making the most of his time. It's not, you know, it's just making fun of one of the network TV shows. It's fine. They didn't overthink it, neither did I. So I had some good laughs. We now have the good nights. Gilda and Lorraine are still covered in mud and they hug OJ. Then Gilda starts chasing Bill Murray around, trying to hug him as well. Doesn't look like Dan Aykroyd's there. Uh, They all seem to have a a fun time at this goodbye. So some trivia from this episode. O.J. Simpson was the only living host not invited to attend the 25th anniversary, for obvious reasons, though he was at the 15th anniversary. Tom Davis's parents were in the audience for the first and only time for this episode. And this is the uh, episode where Jane pulls ahead of Chevy for weekend update hosting spots. So a little bit of stuff on the go beyond the obvious for trivia. So let's do a wrap up on this one. The host. Okay, we all know his history. We know what becomes of him. I wanted to hate it. Fully believe he killed two people in cold blood, got away with it. The flip side is, you know, my job is to talk about the show in the context of when it's produced, in a way. And then partly from the standpoint of looking back. I do have the ability to separate the art from the artist. 
there's deplorable people out there who are good at what they do. And there's wonderful people who suck at their jobs. I would be outraged if OJ was asked to host today. All things considered, I, uh, I actually thought he did a very good job. He was definitely the most comfortable and smoothest of the non-actors. Uh, though he was, you know, he's somewhat of an actor at that point. And he was definitely a lot more at ease than most of the other hosts. He was never the funniest in anything he did, but I thought he held his own excellently and he worked really well with the cast. There was a sports-heavy feel to this, but nothing near what we got with Fran Tarkenton and nothing near like the, you know, the the, the Nader-ish humor that we they tried to do on the Ralph Nader episode or like Ron Nesson. So they did branch OJ out a little bit. Yeah, I have not much to add to that. He did a fantastic job. At my age, I remember the trial when it was happening, but I didn't fully understand why it was so big. And watching this episode and how charismatic and likable he was, he did his job well. At no point did he seem like he was struggling for his lines or anything like that. He didn't look like he was reading a teleprompter. He looked like he was he looked like he came prepared for what he had to do and he was having fun with it. I can't say a bad word about the job he did. What an interesting uh what an interesting evening we have here, huh? Watching it through our uh through our modern filtration system. I mean it's all it is impossible. It's pretty much impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 really it's fucking annoying that he was good. That's I guess that's how I feel. I'm, I'm yeah. annoyed that he's he was fucking good, and he's the best non. You know, like you said, he was already branching into acting, but you know how I feel about uh, the quote unquote these people, <laughs> all the fucking people that come out here and be like, "Hey, Matt, what do you mean?" Has to be O.J. Simpson. He did a good job. Fuck me. The music, Ashford and Simpson, not my genre at all. First song, not much. Really enjoyed the second one. I knew they had a songbook, but I didn't know how extensive their songbook was as songwriters. Again, he was very good. She she was excellent. Um, Really enjoyed it. Yeah, another case of being pleasantly surprised. Seeing them added a lot to it because they were having fun. A lot of times SNL musical guests, they get on there and they try to be too cool. And these guys, like they, they were just cool, and they were having fun doing it. I dug the music, as I mentioned, uh, talking about the performances. It was just such a nice breath of fresh air. Uh, and I, I mean, I like disco music. And this wasn't uh, the exceptionally synthetic uh, disco music either that we would see with uh, perhaps Sylvester. You know, but it did make me feel mighty real. So what was the worst sketch of the night, fellas? Uh, the worst bit for me, there were a few contenders. Um, I'm going to have to give it to the one with the animals fucking. It was just, there was nothing to it. I almost want to give something to the cold open as far as like a thumbs down. Because it's a cold open, like you're supposed to get people excited for it. And they were just reading off questions. And the Franken and Davis thing was also very bad. But at least those two, I, I feel like they tried something a bit more. Aside from Lorraine. You know, doing a good job. It was just nothing to it. It was filler. No surprises to any of our super fans that my least favorite sketch of the night was that samurai sketch. My God, I thought it was bad. It was way too long. Like, nobody is good at it. Uh, when when OJ is carrying the sketch, you're 
you're fucking up. Uh, not just, I mean, they didn't know he would go on to kill people. That's not fair. But uh, he's still like, uh, he's still the host. He's still not the guy that's grinding out here every week. Uh, I really just thought it was bad. There was lots of bad things this episode, but that one, that one just pissed me off the most. They didn't know he wasn't a murderer, but they certainly knew he wasn't Italian. And he still carried <laughs> I went with the raid on Nicosia. I like the idea, like some of the impressions, but the jokes were just not there for me. And like I said earlier, it just took me too much research to get the overall joke. Um, very of its time, and it uh, doesn't hold up well today. Best sketch of the night. Oh. Sorry, Keith, I may have to change my vote to what you just said, because it was so unmemorable, I didn't even factor that into my voting for worst sketch. Okay. So take that for what it's worth. All right. I will put you in for Nicosia then. What was the best of the night, fellas? Uh, for me, I'd have to give it to, in a rare case where the last sketch was the funniest, I'm going to give it to the Battle of the Sexes and Races. Things that are controversial, if they're funny and everyone's in on the joke, it, had some, it was quick. It didn't overstay its welcome. It was punchy. And like I said, it reminded me of some Chappelle, Chappelle show sketches. 20 plus years later that would have done the same thing. And yeah, maybe it was one of the very few things where that left me wanting more as opposed to wanting less on this episode. I give my sketch of the night to Mandingo too, uh, because it was fucking balls to the wall, cocaine crazy. It didn't give a shit. There was dudes on dudes and dudes on cows and girls on dudes and everybody's kissing and nobody cares about anything. And it was, it was a perfect send up of this very exploitative movie. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I do like my trash 70s cinema. And this was, it was this was almost too good. I loved it. I went with great moments in sports. I love this spin on the classic Babe Ruth story. Um, you know, he told the kid he'd hit a home run. Loved the twist at the end. Thought everyone throughout was great. Uh, even the host. Uh, but, I mean, it was Garrett that had me laughing the most. But Belushi was 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 certainly in fine form as well. So uh, we're all over the map on that one, guys. Let's go with Star of the Night. Uh, well, <laughs> here we go. Uh, I'm going to have to give my Star of the Night to O.J. Simpson. I thought he did a good job. He delivered what he was supposed to. Even things like the monologue, which were overly long. The reason it wasn't unwatchable is just because of the charm he had. And for the most part, let's be honest, he was playing himself nine times out of ten, but he had fun with it. I can definitely see why he was excellent in Roots. He was excellent in Naked Gun. I can see why he received so many offers outside of football when so many football players do not. You know, in including his reality prank show, Juiced, which I recommend everybody look up because it's fucking haunting. But yeah, no, OJ did a great job, and looking at it from the point of view of Somebody watching the show at the time, and uh, even somebody watching the show now, you know, you can't deny there was a reason this man was so famous. I tipped my hand a little earlier, uh, but my star of the night is Garrett Morris. He is uh, responsible for some really laugh out loud uh, moments this episode. And in ways, you know, it's, it's a comedy show, so I always watch expecting or at least anticipating to laugh a little. But uh, his unexpected, like he really uh, yanked him out of me unexpectedly tonight. And he was all in on everything. Obviously, the three big highlights 
were uh, Mandingo 2, Leon Sphinx, and The Dying Boy. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Great episode for Garrett, who was all in from the get-go. I struggled. It came down to Garrett or Lorraine for me. I went with Lorraine uh, out of, I gave her the quantity vote. Uh, Garrett got bigger laughs, but Lorraine was throughout it more and solid and everything. I thought she was the best thing about the samurai sketch. Christy Christina, really fun character. Love her Sandy Duncan. She was great in Mandingo and then had other stuff throughout. The uh, She was around for updates. She was in the, the, the Mohawk commercial. I just thought it was a really strong night for her, um, although it killed me because I did want to go with Garrett. And I'll question this one back and forth until, you know, I forget about it. Overall, fellas, this was a tough one to prep for, you know, by based on everything we've said before. The music was 50-50 for me. Um, the writing was probably 70-30 as far as, as bad. Acting brought it up a lot. This is not a host I wanted to see, but he was very good. There was no tip-tip-top sketches for me, but I did get a lot of laughs. The cast was very ensemble, very evened out tonight. Update was certainly more of a hit than a miss. Monologue was long but well-performed. I thoroughly enjoyed the cold open. Um, so this one for me, after totaling everything up, uh, I went with a 6.5 out of 10. Yeah, for me, I'm pretty close. I went for a 7 out of 10. I felt a pleasant surprise with the music. Uh, I guess we'll say pleasant surprise with the host. Overall, everybody seemed to be a little bit dialed in aside from the writers. It's been several episodes in a row now. I feel like I've been with you guys where... I feel like a very talented cast. They weren't given a whole lot to work with. And yeah, the cast really made up for it. And especially Garrett, Lorraine, and even the juice. It's uh, the cold open was awful. The monologue was bad. Most of the sketches I didn't care for. But uh, gosh, there was some really genuine laugh out loud moments for me. You know, most of them were with Garrett. Weekend update was pretty so-so. I really liked the guests. The music was just such a refreshing change of pace. And uh, that black man, white woman thing was pretty funny. Big letdown with Dan and porn star Lorraine. Lorraine's really in her disco queen era, I keep noticing. Now that we're watching these shows in 1978, uh, she is, she's gone full disco queen, I believe, in her personal life. But that's no factor in my rating of the show. The host was good. The writing sucked. And uh, there was just some wild shit. Pretty mid-show that I guess I guess I got to land on a mid-grade. Five out of ten. So with my 6.5, Matt's five, Chili's seven, we wind up with a 6.2. Still brings us pretty close to the uh, IMDb score of 6.9, which is low for them. But uh, again, might be skewed for obvious reasons. They rank this as number 16 of the year out of 20, and 354 of uh, up to... Uh, to date of all the episodes that seems reasonable to me um i might have graded a little higher than some other ones that the imdb likes more than me but and, and chili you as well uh, i think that's a reasonable place to land so chili thank you for joining us for this uh this what could have been a very awkward episode no like i'm like i said i'm a huge true crime fan so it is good to you know, if you have any other murderers or alleged murderers on the show, I'd be more than happy to jump in at the last minute. Not sure if like Jerry Brudos or John Wayne Gacy host any episodes, but if they do, no. let me know. 
Now, we have Robert Blake, though, if you're interested, down the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, guys, thanks for having me again. This is a, a fun and unique episode to watch. I would have been very disappointed if uh, I didn't get the call up for this one. But Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. No problem. Matt, do you know who's hosting next week? I don't. Lay it on me. Art Garfunkel. Oh, man. <laughs> I've already... How much, how much meat will be served? <laughs> I've already had such a portion this evening. I know. Yeah. You get a break after that for a while. Uh, and his, uh, his musical guest is Stephen Bishop. I don't know who Stephen Bishop is. So I guess Art is Art out here promoting, uh, what was that movie he was in with Candace Berg and Carnal Knowledge? Is that the... No, no, no I don't is think that, no. Is that around this time? I think that's earlier. <laughs> the thought of Art Garfunkel not being his own musical guest is very funny to me for some reason. We do get some music from Art, though. He clear, a man who clearly does what he wants. Yep. We'll be back in about a week. But until then, we'll be raiding Nicosia here in SNL. 